You're listening to a message that was recorded live at Roots Community Church in Costa Mesa, California. Roots exists to celebrate the glory of God through lives transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about our community, visit us at rootschurch.net. Amen. Amen. If you uh, have a Bible, turn with me to Matthew as you remain standing. If you're able, turn with me to Matthew 13. As we now attempt to stand under the word of God, we'll begin in verse 24 and we'll read 24 to 30 and then we'll hear Jesus' explanation of this parable in verses 36 to 43. So beginning in verse 24, Matthew 13, 24. He, that is Jesus, put another parable before them, saying... The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So the plants came up and bore grain, and then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, an enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, no, lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Let, verse 30, let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Verse 36. Then he left the crowds and went into the house and his disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He, Jesus answered, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world and the good seed is is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers. And he'll throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears let him hear. This is God's word to us this morning. Please be seated. We are continuing, as we've read in our study of the gospel of Matthew this morning, uh, and we come to another sobering teaching in this sermon of parables taught by none other than Christ himself. Last week, If you'll remember, we took a look at the parable of the soils, where Jesus related four different conditions of soil, and he related that to four different conditions of the heart. And he does this for his disciples to teach them that that not everyone who hears the gospel and not everyone who even responds to the gospel has a truly converted heart or has fruit that bears um, resemblance of a true believer. 
Instead, Jesus says that the hardness of heart, the heat of life, the cares of this world all threaten to extinguish the the root of the gospel. However, in the heart of one who has been humbled by the grace of God, humbled by their own indwelling sin, the stones and the thorns of their own life, for the one who stands under the gospel, Jesus says that life, this life, will produce an unimaginable harvest. This heart is a heart that is ready for the gospel to take root in and bear fruit. Well, in our parable this morning, Jesus keeps with this agricultural illustration, this agricultural theme. But in our our, um, parable this morning, he now narrows the application even further. Instead of comparing four different types of conditions of the heart or soils of the heart, if you will, instead of that, in this parable, Jesus distills down all of humanity into just two categories, just two categories, two kinds of people. In the parable, it is the, the, those that are the weeds and those that are the wheat. And then in the explanation of the parable, Jesus says those that are the sons of the kingdom and those who are the sons of the evil one. He distills down all of humanity into just two kinds of people. What's more is that Jesus goes on to describe for us in vivid detail what will become of each of these two kinds of people at the end of the age. And so if you're following along, if you're a note taker, if this is helpful, our outline this morning, as sober as this text is, our outline is very simple. First, we'll see the persistence of evil. Second, we'll see the promise of judgment. And third, we'll end with the power of the gospel the persistence of evil, the promise of judgment, and the power of the gospel. First, the persistence of evil. As we've read, the the farmer is told in the parable, the farmer is told that um, while the workers were sleeping, an enemy has come or someone has come into the field and has sown weeds among the wheat. And, And... and after doing some reading this week, I came to find that, that this was actually, I was surprised to find that in the first century, this was a fairly common thing among competitors, farmers that were competing. They would send out uh, sowers while the enemy or while the other farmer sleeping, and they would sow in a weed that was called darnel in the wheat harvest. And the, 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 the point was to spoil the crop. And darnel uh, looks almost exactly like wheat. And so even in the first century in, in, in Rome, they had laws on the books that it was illegal to sow darnel into another man's field. And again, the reason why darnel, this weed, is so dangerous is it, is it looks exactly like wheat. The only difference is at the time of harvest, despite looking like wheat, there would be no stalks of wheat at the end. When it was time to harvest the darvis, the, the darnel would not produce fruit. It was an imposter. It was fake. It was, a, it was a fraud. Well, this seems like an easy fix, at least to the, the workers in the parable. They, they just say, just send out some laborers to pull the darnel up, to pull the weeds up and leave, leave the wheat and you'll salvage your harvest. It's an easy fix. Well, the problem was, and this is what made darnel so dangerous to a crop, the problem is the root systems. 
the root systems between the wheat and the darnel would grow together. They would begin to splice together and become all twisted up. And so when you would go out and try to pull out the darnel, if you could discern the difference, you'd pull out the, the weeds. Because the roots were interconnected, you would pull out the wheat too and spoil your harvest. And so the master of the house, the master of the field, opts to wait. He opts to wait. He says in verse 30, let both grow together, the weeds and the wheat. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. At harvest, everything is going to be pulled up anyway. And so just go and find the the wheat. Of course, that's going to be sprouting fruit. You can gather those and instead gather the darnel, the, the, the weeds, gather them in bundles and toss them into the furnace. Later in private, the disciples, as is their custom, they pull Jesus aside and say, we need some insight. We need to know what's going on here in the parable of the weeds. And Jesus explains it this way, beginning in verse 37. Look at verse 37 and following. He said, the one who sows good seed, here's the parable explained. The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. And the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. And the weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy, verse 39, who sowed them is the devil. Family, the first thing we need to acknowledge is that Jesus is not talking about weeds and wheat that grow in the church. He's not talking about the wheat and the tares that grow together in the church, we can assume that because the church is in the world, that there will be wheat and tares in the church growing together. That may be true. However, this parable is about good seed and bad seed that has been sown in the world. Jesus says the field is the world. Jesus has a cosmic view in this parable. Next, we're not surprised to hear that Jesus is the sower of the good seed. We know that there are preachers and evangelists and apostles that will come after him, but Jesus is the main sower of the good seed. All of us preachers and pastors are simply giving away what we've received from the Lord. He is the sower of the good seed. We're not surprised to find Jesus as the sower of the good seed. However, we need to wrestle this morning with the reality that Satan is the main sower of the bad seed. That's what Jesus says. The sower of the bad seed is the devil. Now, hyper-progressive theology wants nothing to do with the reality of Satan. Satan, in in their view, is, is merely a metaphorical figure and represents a kind of faceless evil in the world. He's not a real being. We don't really need to, to worry about Satan. And so progressive or, or liberal theology wants to sort of do away with Satan altogether and just keep this sort of concept of bad things intact. Hyper-conservative theology, on the other hand, makes Satan to be almost omnipresent, almost behind every rock. Satan is behind every bad cup of coffee, every stomach ache you've ever had. It was Satan that did it. Satan does it. 
So on one hand, we've got sort of liberal theology. On the other hand, we have sort of hyper-conservative theology. And the reality is both views of Satan, in my, in my understanding, fall short of Christ's own teaching. Because according to, to Christ, Satan is a real being. And he is really evil. And he is really active in the world. It's not metaphorical for some sort of idea of fallenness or idea of evil. He is actual and real, but he's not omnipresent. God is omnipresent, meaning he's everywhere at all times. Satan is also not omnipotent. He's not all-powerful. When we think of Satan and God, we don't think of two sort of bucks locking horns in the, in the, in the grass fields, and we're wondering who's going to win. We know who wins. Satan is not omnipresent. However, he has been. Listen, Satan has been, since Genesis chapter 3, sowing a complex ecosystem of deceit and darkness in the world for a very long time. It is an ecosystem of deceit and darkness and evil in the world. Along with the sin in our own hearts, Satan is behind, according to Christ, the persistence of evil in the world today. He's behind every cult. He's behind every murder. He's behind every betrayal. He's behind every rebellion. Satan is behind the persistence of evil in our world today. He has been sowing rebellion into the fabric of the cosmos since Genesis. And we're foolish to pretend as though he and his work does not exist. We would be fools to pretend that he and his work does not exist. According to Christ, he does. But please listen, and this is an even more sobering reality. The fruit of Satan's ecosystem is not mere evil, or it's not evil only. In other words, it's not as though the extent of Satan's work is to pump out bad content that we don't want our kids to listen to or consume. Behind Satan's work is not merely evil content. No, the main fruit of this deceitful harvest, according to Christ, are human beings who reject the offer of free grace. Jesus calls them sons of the evil one. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's not as though Jesus just, or rather Satan pumps out mere evil or bad content. The fruit of this harvest are people that are deceived. People, human beings that are rejecting the free offer of God's mercy and grace. Now, when we think of sons of the evil one, I don't know, maybe it's just me. I just, I think of the name of a really bad 70s dark metal band. <laughs> good morning or good afternoon, good evening. We're the sons of the evil one. Thank you for coming. And then they play some horrible song and it's, you know, singing about whatever. Or maybe we think of, when we think of sons of the evil one, maybe we think of uh, those news stories that capture our the, the imagination we don't want of just some incredible evil that's happening, darkness, betrayal, murder, whatever. 
those things happen in this world. That kind of twisted darkness and evil happens. But that's not what Jesus is teaching us in this parable. In my view, Jesus is teaching us a reality that is far worse because the sons of the evil one in this parable don't look evil at all. They look like wheat. They're moral people. In fact, up until harvest, as I said, they they look just like the wheat in the field. This is not some dark metal band or some evil thing that was just like, oh, that's evil. Clearly, that's evil. No, in this parable, these are taxpayers. These are people that are mowing your lawn when you didn't ask them to. These are normal people. However, the great serpent of old keeps feeding them a steady diet of self-reliance. And they never lift their chins to the horizon of God's grace and ask for forgiveness. And so they remain fully satiated, full, in this ecosystem of self-reliance. These are the sons of the evil one. So in this parable, to begin with, Jesus sheds light on the persistence of evil. This is why evil persists today. The landowner says, let them grow together. And at the end of the age, there will be a reaping. There will be a harvest. And God will be the one that sorts them out. Now, from the persistence of evil, Jesus now moves to the promise of judgment. Look at verse 40 and following. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire... Jesus says, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, verse 41, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin. That that translation in, in the ESV is a little clumsy. It should be all sin causers. This is talking about people. All causes of sin and all lawbreakers. So we know... Jesus has in mind not just evil deeds going to eternal punishment, but lawbreakers, people, humans. Verse 42, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I take zero pleasure in talking about the doctrine of, of hell. I praise God that he is a God of justice. When I and you see injustice, the immediate impulse that we want is what? We want we want justice. It's innate in our fabric and that's part of being made in the image of God. We want justice when we see injustice and I injustice and I praise God for his justice. But there is no doctrine in all of scripture that is more emotionally taxing than the doctrine of eternal judgment, of the doctrine of hell. To linger for just a moment, for five minutes on this doctrine, to contemplate its reality is almost too much to bear. 
I heard someone say years ago that if, if you can't talk about the doctrine of hell without tears in your eyes and sorrow in your soul, then you're not ready to talk about it. I do take comfort in the fact that according to Ezekiel 33, that God himself takes no delight in the death of the wicked. God is not sadistic. God does not love human suffering. He doesn't delight in the death of the wicked, only that they would turn and repent, Ezekiel 33 says. I take great comfort that God does not delight in this doctrine. Yes, God delights in his own justice, but he doesn't delight in the death of the wicked. God is not sadistic. In fact, in 2 Timothy, rather 2 Peter 3 verse 9 says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And yet, wide is the road that leads to destruction. We learned that from the Sermon on the Mount. Wide is the road that leads to destruction. Surprisingly, Jesus taught more on the doctrine of hell than he did on the doctrine of heaven. In fact, nobody talks more about hell than Jesus in the entire New Testament. And so in our parable, we are going to deal with the reality that Christ wants us to deal with. And in his parable, eternal judgment first is likened to a fiery furnace. And then it is likened to a place that is filled with weeping and gnashing of teeth. Those are two images, two illustrations that Jesus wants us to understand as we think about the end of the age in these two categories of people. The fiery furnace and weeping and gnashing of teeth. First, the, a fiery furnace. Elsewhere, you've probably heard this or read it, that hell is referred to as the lake of fire. The lake of fire or that place where the fire is never quenched and the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. This image of hell has led many to produce signs and gospel booklets depicting the reality of hell. Turn or burn, some of these signs will read. Is that what hell is actually like? Fire. My own children have asked me at times if I think hell will be a place of actual or literal fire. Well, the answer to that question is, is no. And, and sometimes that brings great relief. Oh, good. It's not going to be like that. Well, hell is also described in, in the Bible from Christ himself as a place of outer darkness. A place of outer darkness. Well, you can't have both. Both can't be true. There can't be the flames of fire and outer darkness. These are images these are illustrations. 
to communicate to us why this would be the last place anyone would ever want to be. In fact, listen, we know that throughout the Bible, the image or symbol of a thing is always less severe than the thing itself. The image or the symbol of a thing is less severe than the thing itself. As one theologian said, quote, those in hell would actually prefer a lake of fire. The image is less severe than the thing itself. Hell is a horrifying reality and it is a real reality, a realm, a real realm. The Bible doesn't teach just the fact that you will have a hellish experience on earth apart from Christ. But this is indeed a real realm. It's horrifying and terrifying. And it's likened to a fiery furnace. Next, Jesus says that eternal punishment will be a place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Many have said that uh, hell, and I remember this growing up, that hell is, it's just the absence of God. That's what hell is. Hell is the absence of, of God. God isn't there. That's why they're weeping, because God isn't there. And, and that person, if you've said that, I know I've said that, it's partially true. Hell is the absence of God's benevolence. It's the absence of his mercy and grace. God's kindness is not present in hell. Again, as another writes, quote, hell is the only place where not a single ounce of God's grace penetrates. It's the only place where not a single ounce of God's grace penetrates. God's benevolence is not there. God restraining wickedness and evil is not happening there. God stopping the suffering and the injustice is not happening there. His benevolence is not there. But God is most certainly there. David says, where can I go from your presence? Even if I go down to Sheol, behold, you are there. God is there and he is executing justice and judgment. God is there and his holy hatred of sin and injustice is on full display. And therefore there is much weeping. But it's weeping that is mixed with anger and hatred toward God. That's what's being communicated with the phrase gnashing of teeth. I don't know if you've ever wondered what that phrase means. To gnash your teeth. It's a Hebraic expression to be fierce with anger. There is weeping, I'm sure, regret, sorrow, but there is sorrow met with anger. They gnashing their teeth at God. They hate God. Those in hell don't want him. They loathe him. They hate his justice. And so they gnash their teeth at him. What a horrifying, terrifying scene. 
And friends, I do think because Jesus talked about it so much that we must let the full weight of these disturbing realities, if not anything else, wake up the soul. We're so sedimentary in the West. We're so comfortable. Every bit of pain that we feel has got some sort of medication to get out of it. We, and I'm not saying that that's bad, but we need to wake up and realize that there is going to be eternal consequences. And the, at least the illustrations that Jesus uses communicate to us, whatever it will be like, is that none of us, not even your worst enemy, you would want to be in this place. And so Jesus teaches us about the persistence of evil and he teaches us about the promise of judgment. It will come. It will come. Finally, we'll end now with the power of the gospel. There is an interesting story and you have heard it if you've been in around church for for really any amount of time. In Daniel chapter 3, And it's about these three Hebrew characters, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they're in Babylonian captivity. They've been captured by Babylonian forces and they've been taken from Israel in Babylon. They're in captivity and they've got a new king, the king Nebuchadnezzar. And this king has a law. And the law is to bow down to Nebuchadnezzar as the king of all kings and lord of all lords. Well, these three Hebrew men say, we can't can't do that. We cannot, we're going to break this law of King Nebuchadnezzar and accept the consequences. Well, Nebuchadnezzar cannot believe this sort of rebellion by these three Hebrew men. He's so furious that he, he says that, that, that you're going to get capital punishment. If you don't bend the knee, you're going to, to die. You're going to be thrown into a fiery furnace. And they've refused to bend the knee. And Nebuchadnezzar is so upset, he's so angry, that he, he has his servants turn the heat up in the furnace seven times so that even the servants who are heating the furnace end up dying because it is so hot in the middle of this thing. And yet Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego with the strength that God supplies continue to say, we accept the consequences and they are thrown into the fiery furnace. And this is where the story picks up. Let me read it to you. Then Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. And he declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, true king, yes, we did. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, but I see four men unbound and walking in the midst of the fire and they're not hurt and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Correct me if I'm wrong, counselors. Didn't we throw three men in and now, and we threw them in bound, and now there are four men walking around unbound and living. 
Friends, this little vignette in Daniel chapter three, this story we have is a brilliant, I can't think of a better foreshadow to the gospel of Jesus Christ as it relates to the judgment of God. Because there is, listen, absolutely in the Bible, there is no way around the judgment of God. There's no way around it. No one gets to shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father apart from God's judgment. Jesus said in our text in chapter 13, verse 41, the son of man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all law breakers. All law breakers are gathered together and thrown into this realm of utter terror. And the ghastly, the worst news is that the Bible declares that all have transgressed, that all indeed have transgressed God's good law, which means we are all lawbreakers. The wages of sin is what? Death. And now the reason why the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is so fitting is it sets up the gospel of Jesus Christ in such a brilliant way. Because Jesus, the law keeper, the only law keeper who's ever lived descends into the fiery furnace of God's holy wrath and he's punished as a lawbreaker. The law keeper is punished as a lawbreaker so that lawbreakers who put their trust in him would be counted as law keepers and therefore the fire of God's holy wrath will not consume them like the furnace did not consume Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Friends, don't you see? Don't you see what is happening on the cross of Christ? Jesus' main suffering on the cross of Christ did not come from a plucked beard or a Roman spear. That was not his main source of suffering. No, his main suffering came when great darkness came over the earth and God the Father began to punish his son for sins he never committed. So that through this punishment, through his stripes, we could become healed. The true lawbreakers. And through Jesus' dissension into the furnace, we could come out unscathed. And from the cross, while this is happening, while the holy and righteous anger and fury of God is being poured out on the only one who hasn't broken any laws, while this is happening, and at the end of this, Jesus utters these words. Do you remember? It is what? It's finished. And you, Christian, need to answer the question, what's finished? What's over with? What is satisfied on the cross? What has been drinking all the way down? And the answer is this. Judgment is finished. Weeping and gnashing of teeth is finished. Outer darkness is finished. For those who put their trust in Jesus Christ, hell is finished. When Jesus is dying on the cross, when he is bearing the weight of our sin, he is bearing the weight of eternal hell for 
those who trust in him. This is the power of the gospel. This is that diamond that rests on the black velvet of sin and darkness and evil. This is what makes the gospel shine so bright. The lawkeeper is punished as the lawbreaker so that lawbreakers would be treated as lawkeepers. This is the gospel. You and I have only two options in life. We will either accept Jesus' payment for our sins or we will pay for our own. He who has ears, let him hear. Let me pray. Father in heaven, this is a sobering text. It communicates a sobering reality. And I pray that you would use your word and my preaching, as fickle as it is, to wake the soul. Would you wake up our souls? Both to the reality of God's just and good judgment and to the reality of God's offer of grace and forgiveness. Oh Lord, help us. In Jesus' good name, we pray. Amen.